0: Today's sponsor is MailChimp, the world's leading email marketing platform. 12 million people use MailChimp every day to connect to their customers, market their products, and grow their e-commerce businesses. Send better email, sell more stuff. My guest today is Reviews Editor Arthur Gies. My name is Charlie Hall, in for Justin McElroy. You're listening to Polygon's Quality Control. Thank you for joining me today, Arthur. Today we're going to talk about Dishonored 2, if you got a couple of minutes.
1: Uh, you know, I've got like one or two, probably.
0: <laughs> now we're kind of coming into the end of your holiday marathon here of uh, game reviewing. Um, but Dishonored 2 is one that's been very much hotly anticipated. For those that might not be familiar, introduce us to the world of Dishonored.
1: Uh, Dickensian... Tesla punk, I guess would be the way I would describe it. Uh, the way that they, they have a term for it, uh, called whale punk, which is that, uh, it is a hyper industrial revolution in a sort of Victorian setting where there's lots of very science fictiony technology, uh, but still rooted in the expectations of the industrial revolution. And instead of oil from petroleum, uh, it runs on the oil from whales, uh, and those whales are sort of being hunted into extinction, and that's uh, a plot line that's going in the game. But uh, but yeah, so it, it's very much a, a steampunk sort of sort of Victorian Dickensian nightmare state.
0: And your review kind of picks up uh, right at the beginning of things and, and goes into detail of how it it branches almost immediately. It branches onto one of two different main protagonists. Either Royal Protector Corvo Attano, or the Empress Emily Caldwin, so how does this play out in game terms like how are you how how is it sheared into two different experiences and presented to the player
1: so um for people who didn't play the first game, Corvo was the protagonist of that game, uh, and that game opens with the Empress. Uh, Jessamine Caldwin, I believe her name was, being assassinated in front of her daughter, Emily. Uh, And over the course of that game, you as Corvo are framed and need to take revenge and sort of unravel the conspiracy that blamed you for the death of the Empress, who is also your lover. It's revealed later. Uh, Corvo is Emily's father. And this isn't a plot point that's buried anywhere. It's very, very explicitly uh, acknowledged in the game. And so when the game starts there's a moment where you're playing as Emily as you're walking through the Royal Audience Chamber and Throne Room because it's the anniversary of Jessamine Caldwin's assassination. And uh, very quickly a coup occurs uh, and and, uh, Emily is deposed. And as a fight takes place in the Throne Room, it goes to a scene of Emily and Corvo backed back and that is where you select the character that you will play for the rest of the game. Uh, and the other character is incapacitated by the uh, the the coup plotters, uh, and from there, um, each each of the characters has different abilities. Like they have some basic sort of similarities in what they can do, um, but uh, they have some pretty substantial differences in the things that they do. Emily seems more stealth oriented, whereas Corvo has more abilities that are oriented to conflict, though. He is also more than capable of ghosting, as the game calls it, of being not seen, of, of making your way through the game world like a ninja. Um, but they do play quite differently, and I think there may even be differences in how easily they're seen by enemies. Uh, at least in my time with the game.
0: And I want to get a little bit more to into the to kind of the gameplay of it, but I, I want to linger here for just a moment. Like narratively speaking, it's just a very strange decision, in my opinion, to just kind of, you know effectively off one of the one of the protagonists right at the start what does it accomplish narratively as the game goes on to to not have access to one or the other of these characters throughout the game
1: the sort of result is that it's a game about one person as opposed to the pair and how they interact with each other um at least that was my experience playing through it as emily i didn't finish the game with corvo uh it provides a narrative motivation for the character that I'm going to rescue my dad or I'm going to rescue my daughter and like get back at these people that took the throne. Uh, and so it's not, I mean, it doesn't really seem like it affects things too terribly much. Uh, the dialogue that you get in certain circumstances from people and the way they react to you is different depending on who you are. Um, but, uh, But I I don't think that it actually, a lot of the story doesn't depend on who you are. It's sort of witnessing the world and, and understanding how the conspiracy occurred and the people behind it as much as anything. Very interesting. So let's
0: get into kind of the gameplay of Dishonored 2 though. You you mentioned and I think it's it should be obvious at this point if you if you're at all familiar with the original Dishonored, they're very similar games gameplay-wise and they kind of evoke a lot of this late 90s and early 2000s kind of stealth gameplay.
1: Yeah, I, I think the most direct correlation that you could rightfully make uh is uh I think it was Looking Glass that did Thief. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Uh, I knew that you, of all people, Charlie, would be able to confirm that for me. Um, So Thief was a first-person stealth game that really disincentivized combat. Uh, You played as a thief named Garrett, who really wasn't good at fighting uh, and would get smoked pretty easily if he got into open conflict. And Dishonored isn't quite to that degree. Uh, There are lethal combat options, and you can... uh, you can definitely fight fight your way through certain scenarios, but you can't handle like five or six guards at once. If there's more than two people attacking you, then chances are you're probably screwed. Um, and so it, it's not like a Splinter Cell game or a Metal Gear game. You're not so much able to hide in ways that are implausible. It's very line of sight uh, and peripheral vision based. Um, and ideally you will always be taking a sort of high road and going upwards and over, uh, opposition and sort of sneaking around and like going through unlocked doors and balconies and things like that. Um, and it's other comparisons are, are warranted there with thief because thief was a similar sort of, um, industrial revolution era fantasy. Um, and there were sort of similar conspiracies at play. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's very much a first person experience. Uh, when you, when you're in cover, there's no third-person camera. You can lean around corners to try to see what's there, but you can be seen if you're leaning. Um, and in that way, just the the awareness of the AI and the sort of difficulty of some of the game makes it feel even more like Thief in a lot of ways, um, ignoring the sort of powers uh, that you get, the sort of supernatural abilities that you're granted.
0: Now this is very interesting to me. I was reading through your, your review and it actually mentions that you you don't have to take up any of these supernatural abilities. Tell me some more about how that deci- decision is presented to players and some of the outcomes of that.
1: Uh so one of the 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 one of the the characters uh or the sort of like uh movers and shakers of the original game was this godlike figure uh called the outsider who rules a sort of parallel dimension called the Void. Um, And he is invested in the sort of goings, the comings and goings of of the world that you live in. Uh, And in the first game, you were offered his mark as Corvo, which would grant you abilities uh, from the outsider to sort of exact your revenge and get justice. And in this almost immediately, um, although you do have to play through a level without your powers, uh, immediately after that sort of introductory level, you are once again brought into the Void by the Outsider and given the option to accept his mark and gain abilities from the Void to sort of help you on your mission. But you can decline. You can you can deny the mark of the Outsider and play without those powers. And once you do... Uh, that makes the game considerably more difficult uh, because the game is built to, to sort of enable these abilities to be used to, to make it easier. But it is also built in such a way that you can get around, you can be stealthy without them. It's just much, much more difficult. And so it's just a, a manner in which they're allowing people to play The game more difficult uh, with a higher level of difficulty, which seems to be sort of a running theme in the game is that it's it is a more difficult game. It is more punishing. It is more trial and error than the first game is, I think, in large part, because that's what arcane thought people wanted.
0: Hmm. What is the difference in gameplay when you get into it between Corvo and Emily, though? Like what am I going to be behaving and interacting and doing different things as one versus the other?
1: uh not so much with your your moment to moment play or the way that you interact with characters although there will be dialogue differences depending on on who you're talking to uh because typically they know who emily is and they know who corvo is and they'll respond accordingly um as far as gameplay goes they have a similar set of abilities but there are sort of subtle differences they both have a short range teleport um Emily has something called has a new teleport called far reach, which sort sort of shoots out these shadow hands that drag her towards things, uh, which is a very practically similar ability to the blink ability that Corvo had in the first game that makes a return appearance here. But as those abilities evolve, they sort of become more different. Uh, far reach can be upgraded to grab things, to grab objects and eventually to grab people. Um, whereas uh, Blink for Corvo can be upgraded to freeze time when you're in the air and motionless, which allows you to make more sort of nuanced decisions and more sort of athletic and acrobatic displays of that short-range teleport, whereas Emily, at best, can slow time down doing the same thing. And so... As the game goes on and you upgrade their abilities, they diverge. Uh, Corvo, in the first game, could possess rats and fish to make his way into areas that were otherwise off limits to him. Uh, but those those options had no offensive capabilities. Whereas Emily has an ability called Shadow Form uh, that makes her much more stealthy and allows her to get a very easy, non-lethal or lethal takedown of an enemy. But also, as it gets upgraded, you can navigate these sort of rat tunnels that Corvo would need to possess a rat to to navigate. Um, and so from there, there are similarities early on, but eventually they sort of articulate differently.
0: Hmm. One of the things that really jumped out at me in your review uh, was that you said that levels in Dishonored 2 feel more like places. And you also called out the fact that they do an excellent job of leaving its world building and fiction everywhere. So tell me some more about how the story is progressed and how it's illuminated, but just by being in that world.
1: There's just so many, it's such a different world from ours and it's so dense from an art perspective that there's just lots of sort of casual evidence everywhere of, of what kind of world you're in. Um, right down from the character's faces and bodies and appearances and the things that they say to the things in their houses and the things that they read and the books that are everywhere. And one of the things that games like this have been criticized for in the past, rightly or wrongly, is this idea of garbage collecting, that there's just junk everywhere that you can pick up. Uh, and I, I, I kind of admire arcane for not taking that criticism and changing what they're doing, that Instead, Dishonored is all about that trash collecting. There's just stuff everywhere to find, and some of it is, is useless, but a lot of it isn't. And in a quest to find collectibles, you will learn a lot about the world that you're in. A lot of lore is hidden, not just on walls, but in books and things like that. And there are sort of interesting return appearances by, by virtue of that fiction from the first game, sort of elaborations on things from the first game that were only insinuated there. And so it's just a really interesting place to spend a lot of time in. In that respect, I definitely took a lot longer for my first playthrough of Dishonored 2 than I did for Dishonored 1, in In large part because of that, but also because it's so much harder. Well, they've
0: also, your review states, uh, gone to great lengths to really evolve the levels that you're playing on not just adding story but adding uh gameplay content as well one of the sections of your review says at least two levels that you could recall that shifted and changed in real time in ways that i don't think i've seen before in a game i know that you're very clearly trying to avoid spoilers there but but can you elaborate on that what do you mean when you're saying that
1: I think that we'll just get a, a tiny bit spoilery here, so if you don't want to hear this, then you should skip ahead a couple of minutes. Um, I'll, this is just for one of the levels. Uh, there is a what's called a clockwork mansion. Uh, one of the things you see in the game are these clockwork soldiers, uh, that are being that have been created by this scientific genius, and you need he's part of the conspiracy, and so you need to sort of figure out what his deal is and and break into his house, and he has what. I think it's called a clockwork mansion. And as you pull switches in this mansion, it literally reconfigures itself. It, the rooms become different in front of you. Uh, like these panels pull back and new walls come in and, and credenzas fold out and all this other stuff happens, like stairs appear or disappear. And as you make your way through the level and you sort of get to sneak your way behind the scenes, you find that there is a sort of working structure behind this, that it's not just magic of stuff disappearing. It's that these parts of the level are folded mechanically and and don't disappear. Like, they are still there. And so it's this very sophisticated way of transforming the game by a means I don't think I've ever seen before, in a way that feels extremely believable while also being fantastic and really impressive. That sounds really cool. (laughs) It is really, really extremely cool, and it's one of the things in the game where it feels like this wasn't something that Dishonored 1 could have done, that this is something that is exclusively possible on the new hardware that this game is taking place on. And, you know, like, I feel like a lot of times we don't see that in games that we're playing. We don't see things that we couldn't have seen on the last generation of consoles. Uh, And this is one of those things where it definitely feels that way. And there's another mission later in the game that does a a similar level of, holy crap, I can't believe I'm seeing this kind of stuff. Um, It's really impressive.
0: Well, Dishonored 2, of course, marks a uh, kind of a... Diversion here from standard operating procedure for Bethesda, which is the publisher on this game And that is that they didn't get review code out To uh, outlets like Polygon until a day before the game released commercially so you know, they've, they've indicated in press releases and on the website that this is going to be their policy going forward. This is the first new game, um, since they've really formalized that policy, you know, what are your thoughts and feelings on this and how did it change how you had to approach the game when
1: you reviewed it? Yeah, I, I wonder if I'm supposed to find an eloquent means of saying it really sucks. Uh, but that is certainly the most, uh, direct and succinct way of putting it it sucks it sucks for reviewers um I think that uh it was a new level of stress and pressure above the stress and pressure that comes from reviewing a high profile game in a short amount of time which is just sort of the nature of our business um I got it I, I I feel a little sorry for Arcane releasing this in, in the United States when they did because it came out the day after election day and that in and of it, or we got it the day after election day. It came out the week of the election. And I know that it was extremely difficult to focus on the game for at least the first couple days I got it. And after that, the, the challenge is that I'm after deadline, that the deadline is already passed, that the game is out there, that people are playing it, that every, every minute that it's not up is another minute where it becomes less relevant to our audience because they have the game, they know. Um, and unfortunately, it, it means that we're less able to protect people from buying a game that they didn't realize they didn't want. Uh, in a lot of ways, Dishonored 2 is a much more punishing, less forgiving game than the original Dishonored is. And I don't know, I, I feel like that's something that that maybe, uh, that I wish that people had known going in more, um, that it's not bad that a game is too hard for you or that you don't want a game that's as punishingly difficult as Dishonored 2 can be. To say nothing of the massive PC problems that the game has suffered, even after a couple of patches, it's still not functioning the way that people expect that it should Um, and, and I, I bet that a lot of people wish that they had known that the PC version doesn't run well, that it has performance problems. Um, and you know, I, I just think that, that the criticism of the game or critique rather of the game suffers when people have to rush through it the way that they did. It took me longer to play. Dishonored 2, then it took me to play Dishonored 1, but I turned around the review in about half the time. Um, and that's not... I don't think that that ever benefits a game, honestly. Uh, and I certainly don't think it benefits the audience. And so, it's a struggle because I know that it's not a decision made by the people who made the game. I'm sure that they wish that people could have seen the game much earlier because that's something that they're justifiably very proud of. But it it is another sort of bit of mental calculus to make uh, in addition to the fact that playing a game for review is a job and that inherently is less fun than playing it on your own time uh, along with if you have to play it on a short deadline that's another bit of mental calculus you have to factor into the way that you write about the game because that's not a, an organic circumstance and now almost, not almost but, but legitimate open antagonism from a publisher is something that that has to be factored into the way that we react to their games, um, and and it's not easy. It's not easy to take the annoyance and irritation that I feel at, at Dishonored 2's publisher for sort of thumbing their nose at the press, and you know, it's something that I'm sure will continue to be a conversation moving forward. Every time that Bethesda releases a game and talks about a game and I think that that's unfortunate because I think ideally we we just want to talk about stuff, you know, like we we want to do right by the people that make the games and the people that play them. And I think that this makes it difficult to do that.
0: Well, I, I really did enjoy... The, the review that you put up on the site based on uh, your analysis and your, your thoughts and feelings on the game. The game certainly scored well. It got an 8.5 based on the, the PS4 and the Xbox One code. You played uh, the PlayStation 4 version for your review?
1: I played on PS4
0: Pro. Okay. Um, real quick, any differences between regular PS4 and the PS Pro version of this uh, game? It
1: certainly seems to be running at higher than 1080p. Um, I don't think that they've been specific about what the differences are. Um, it's running at a higher resolution than the Xbox One version is, but the Xbox One version doesn't seem to be a slouch. I think Digital Foundry may have done a comparison, um, but I think it looks better on the PS4 Pro. I don't think that it's dramatically better, but it looks better. Um, it's running in a higher resolution than I think it otherwise would be. It wasn't an unpleasant experience, but, you know, it wasn't anything sort of mind-blowing.
0: Now, it's available on Windows like you said. Will we be adding a Windows review score uh, later on? Uh,
1: I'm, I, I'm planning on issuing an update to the review sometime this week, depending on how the updates shake out. But right now, I think that uh, our review score should really only be viewed as applying to the PS4 and Xbox One versions of the game, given the sort of difficulties the community is having with the PC version right now.
0: And that's definitely called out in the bottom of the review where, uh, where we gave it an 8.5 overall. So thanks again for the time, Arthur, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And thanks to you at home for listening today. We've got a lot more on Polygon.com, including a lot of Westworld talk, but also a feature story on The Last Guardian. It's from my friend Matt Leone, and it's titled, A Former Last Guardian Artist's Second Try at a Spiritual Successor. Until we've got another game to talk about, this is Charlie Hall for Arthur Gies. Thank you for listening to Polygon's Quality Control. Integrate and connect your store with MailChimp in order to personalize and automate your marketing. Visit MailChimp.com to learn more.